And what has become more and more important is to find my role in improving those situations, in making those situations better. And the only way I can do that is through my relationship with God, and the only way I have a relationship with God is continuing to try and amplify and grow and learn more about what my spiritual awakening has actually been. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M., I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, my little chickadees. That was the voice of Mr. David G that you heard on the beginning of this episode, and you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment on this here episode number 171. And we are calling this one with David G, having had a spiritual awakening. But first things first, you got it. This episode is coming right out to you and it is sponsored by Caitlin. Hello, Caitlin. I know Caitlin. Gerhard, Marcos, Trudy, and Sandra. Do you happen to know what Caitlin and Gerhard and Marcos, and Trudy, and Sandra did. Well, let me tell you, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com, and they clicked on the little yellow, well, actually, it's not yellow anymore. I apologize, since we changed up the website, it is not yellow anymore, but there is a PayPal tab there, which you can click on and make a contribution. So thank you so much, Caitlin and Gerhard and Marcos and Trudy and Sandra. This episode is coming right out to ya, to ya. I don't know why that 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 phrase gets me, and I like to say it. It just sounds kind of cool for whatever reason. To ya, nonetheless. Um, we, I want to go ahead first off and share a uh, bit of listener feedback that came in. And this bit of feedback is from Barry and he is from across the pond. He's in London town and Barry writes in and the subject line says, howdy. And it's got a big yellow smiley face with a with a cowboy hat on top of it. <laughs> and I know that Barry 
Well, I don't know. I'm not with him on a day-to-day basis, but I would doubt very seriously he says howdy on any sort of consistent basis. But anyway, he says, well, howdy there, John. It's Barry from across the pond with another big yellow smiley face and a cowboy hat on it. He says, John, I hope you're feeling brighter. You shared recently that you were trying to kick the new year and lock down the blues. Well, Mr. Barry, I am feeling better. But, you know, it wasn't easy. I got to tell you, kicking the blues was not easy. I'm, I'm in a much better spot now. But you know what? By the time I get to this evening, I could be back in the same place. I have no idea. But, you know, it just happens and it's part of life. Uh, but thank you for mentioning that, Barry. And then Barry says, times are difficult times are difficult. We are locked down and loaded, and the world we live in is becoming more complex by the day. Very insightful, Barry. He says, but first things first. (laughs) What he's doing here, ladies and gents, is he is mocking me, I believe. And then he says, and before we make a contribution... And then he says, Lords and ladies, he says, it's Friday, which can only mean one thing. MC John, the Texas Lone Ranger, (laughs) the Texas Lone Ranger. But anyway, he says, chair of our global meeting between meetings, facilitator of the meaningful recovery conversation, and this is all in caps, by the way, is back. Six exclamation points, my friends. Then he says, let's get ready to rumble. He's got it all spelled out there. And then three more smiley faces with uh, little cowboy hats on them. And he says, love, John, from the city of London. Together, united, and sober, we march on. Sober speak, tribe. Stay alive. And then a big fist coming right out at you. And then about, I don't know, 15 or 20 of those smiley faces with the cowboy hats on it. There were a lot of emojis in there. The predominant emoji was the smiley face with the cowboy hat in it. But Mr. Barry, thank you so much for writing in. I appreciate you. I appreciate your sense of humor. And I appreciate all of the listeners that are tuning in. As another little reminder, if you are not in the super super, excuse me, if you are not in the super secret Facebook group, the Sober Speak Super Secret Facebook group. Wow, I never realized how many S's were in there. But nonetheless, uh, if you want to be a part of our little tribe, feel free to send me your email associated with your Facebook account to John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, and we will get you an invite out so you can come on in and join us. One of the bits of information, by the way, you see all sorts of things in there. You see people celebrating uh, sobriety days. Uh, you see po- people posing a lot of different questions about how do I handle this situation or that situation. And yeah, people chiming in on all that. Uh, but one of the other things that you can see in there, and I mentioned this last week, is that um, a friend of the podcast, and her name is Megan P. 
She has actually been on the podcast then before. If you want to go back and listen to her uh, episode, just look up Megan P uh, and Sober Speak and, and it should pop up. Nonetheless, uh, she is sponsoring a, or I shouldn't say sponsoring, she's putting on a recovery yoga class. And I forgot to mention last week, but it's absolutely free. And if you're in the Super Secret Facebook group, you can see all the Zoom information on there and how to join. It's on Sunday afternoons at 4 o'clock p.m. Central. I join it on a consistent basis myself, and you don't have to know a lot about yoga or anything like that. It basically is a half AA meeting, and then on the back half, it is yoga and meditation, and uh, it is very relaxing, very soothing, uh, and and it's just really a, a cool deal. So anyway, if you're in the uh, Super Secret Facebook group and you want to look up that Zoom information uh, to join, you're more than w- welcome to join us. And if you're not in there, just send me an email and I'll send you a flyer or something like that to, with all the, the information that's on there. All right. Now, on to this week's episode, and it is with a friend of the podcast. His name, ladies and gentlemen, happens to be Mr. David G. And we are calling this one Having Had a Spiritual Awakening. Now, we covered, we've gone through, well, first of all, David's done a, a live event for us. Uh, he's told his story. We've gone through all the steps, and we got up to step 12. And this is basically the first part of step 12. I'll be having David back on at some point in the near future, but this is the first part of step 12, having had a spiritual awakening. He's going to talk about what that means to him. He'll give you, when I say he, Mr. David G, will give you his view of, quote, happy people, unquote, when he first sobered up and how those types of folks just really irked him uh, and what sort of conclusions he drew from that experience as he's gone through sobriety. David talks about his relationship with his first sponsor, Clovis. We talk about sex and love addiction in this episode. One of the things that David brought up was a quote that he actually got from a friend of his and his friend said, we all get our turn in the fallibility chair. And I just absolutely love that. There is truth, big truth, truth hashtag that goes behind that. We all, we all get our turn in the fallibility chair. Oh, love it, love it, love it. David talks about his involvement with his, uh, David has sober living facilities and, and, and how much he's learned from that and especially what he has learned working with the families of alcoholics and addicts. Uh, It's a great insight. David talks about the five alive and how he practices that every day. And if you don't know what the five alive is, well, just stay tuned. All right, folks, enjoy this episode with Mr. David G. And we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So today... 
We're sitting with Mr. David G. One more time. Can you go ahead and say hello, David G., and give your sobriety date if you wish? Hey, everybody. It's David. I'm an alcoholic, uh, addict, lots of other things. Been sober since uh, September 15th, 1993. <laughs> lots of other things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> Depends on what it makes you feel good. <laughs> Um, some of you may be hearing David G for the first time. If you've been listening to this podcast for any significant period of time, you will know that he has several episodes. I would say there's seven, eight, nine episodes back there, something like that. Yep. Uh, if you just go back and search in the listing for, um, for this uh, podcast, you will see David G many times over and you go back and listen to his other fine works. Huh. Um, but today, so, so we've been really kind of, we started this trek last year, the year before, and we kind of just started going through the steps and we did a, a live event with you in the meantime. Uh, at first it was just parts of your story. And then we started going specifically through the steps and we've been through, I think every step thus far. And now we are up to step number, how do you say 12 in Spanish? Dose? Dose? Anyway, step. <laughs> sorry, you didn't know this was going to be a Spanish quiz. I went to Mexico a couple weeks ago. I did not learn Spanish. <laughs> anyway, it's, yeah, it starts with a D, I'm pretty sure. But nonetheless, we are at step number 12. So, step number 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, like we talked about right before we began this, and that could be, you could take at the minimum three different episodes on this possibly, or three different discussions, I should say. So why don't we start here with the first part of this, and that is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So what comes to mind for you there, David? First thing that pops into my mind is I was in a meeting, gosh, it must have been maybe 30 years ago. And uh, this was when I'd be sober for periods of time, but not uh, would eventually drink or use. And I vividly remember being in this meeting, listening to a, what seemed like an old timer to me at the time. They probably had five years. I have no recollection and the thought just shot through my head, I wonder if they're going to levitate off their chair and dent their halo on the ceiling. <laughs> and it was my perception of what people meant when they called themselves spiritual. I thought that it was some sort of, I don't know, way to praise yourself for being so humble or so you know, full of grace. I just, I had negative views really of anything that made other people happy, you know, happy people had always annoyed me. If you were too happy, I thought there was something going on. And, you know, and I would always find something about you that made it really not important that you had found happiness, if that's even what it was. I, I more thought that it was probably some delusion that you were in, that you had some reason to be happy, because I wasn't. Um, I did not walk around with a smile on my face. I did not feel good about the world around me. Um, I thought, you know, life sucks and then you die seemed like about the most appropriate way to describe the world. Um, everything seemed hypocritical to me, uh, whether it be politics or religion or education or athletics. I, I zoned, uh, focused in on the hypocrisy of the world. And so when people appeared to be happy in AA, it wasn't much different than when people appeared to be happy at church. 
Uh, I had an experience when I was a few years sober that really brought this home to me, and at this time I was recovered. Um, I sang at a church, a Presbyterian church, I'm not Presbyterian, uh, but I sang at this church in the church choir, and I had to be there every service. And so during the month of Advent, December, they had people who throughout the year had done what they called five, five, and five. The minister had suggested that people pray for five or read the Bible for five minutes, pray for five minutes, and meditate for five minutes every day for that year. Now, of course, I didn't do that. You know, I heard the sermons because I had to be there, but I didn't even think about doing five, five, and five. Um, I did my little, you know, quickie. Uh, AA prayer and meditation that I did at the time. But anyway, so during this month of Advent, uh, every church service, they had a different couple of people come up and describe their experience with five, five, and five. And to the person, every one of them stood at the front and began to describing what had happened in their life, about their relationships, about their careers, about their relationship with God, about their feelings about the church, about their feelings of self-worth, about their self-esteem, you name it, all of the important things that really matter in life. These people, to the person, and this is over four weeks, three services a Sunday, 12 people, right? Am I doing the math right? Yeah, 12 different people. And all of them became overwhelmed with gratitude, and all of them cried about how beautiful their life had become over the course of that year. And I related it back to that time a few years before, when I had been at those meetings and heard those people sharing about giving it to God and, you know, having had a spiritual awakening. And I remember distinctly that I knew what these people were saying that I now related to them. I no longer looked at them and thought about them denning their halos on the roof when they levitated off the floor with my sarcastic, angry way of looking at the world. I had now had that experience through the course of AA, through the course of the 12 steps. I had had a spiritual awakening as the result of working these steps. And that experience for me was an eye-opening experience that happened 22, 23 years ago. But it is, you know, it has continued throughout my recovery because I have, it's not like I didn't become jaded. I've always been sort of jaded. I was a jaded three-year-old, you know, (laughs) and I've always been sort of jaded about, you know, happiness and people really being, being real. And are they, you know, you can just hear me, I can hear me saying, are they real? Are they being real? I mean, what is up with them, you know? talking about happy people. And you know, when you're going to AA meetings every day from 1987 to 1993, every day from 90 to 93, and you're picking up a desire chip about every two to three months, and all I can think about the people in the room who are happy is that they're annoying. Does anyone see the crazy in that, the irony that a person like myself who is desperate to feel better and have a better life would immediately gravitate to the other angry, jaded people in the room who think the steps are BS and that all these people are hypocrites and after all, that guy cheated on his wife and that guy got a divorce and that lady got uh, audited by the IRS and that guy hits on newcomers. You know, I was I, I, I just pointed fingers at the world trying to dismiss happiness and yet Feeling good about life, having a spiritual awakening is all I really ever wanted and didn't even know that that's what I was looking for. I love it. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. Uh, And by that, I mean, you know, you've done many of these episodes 
a, a lot of the listeners will they'll contact me and ask me questions about you and you know they uh, a podcasting is a weird kind of forum if you will they they get to know people and uh and they they I just want to ask some questions about you and you know your personal life so to speak so people kind of know what's going on with you on a day-to-day basis so why don't you go ahead and, and just describe a, a general day in the life of David G, right, at this point in time? Oh, gosh. Well, I'll tell you this, and I'm not just saying this because we're on a podcast that's related to the 12 Steps. Every day uh, after I have coffee, because I don't feel good before I have coffee, after I have coffee, um, you know, I read my meditations like we talked about in the last episode, and I get on my knees and I ask God to keep me sober. And many days I stay on my knees and meditate for a few minutes trying to breathe in, you know, some sort of humility about the world around me that I need help, you know. Um, But beyond that, then I stand up and I go about life and I have you know, a very big family now. I had a big family early in my recovery, and then we had some major death events, and that all became very small. And now through a a unusual sequence of events, for lack of better words, I now have a very big family again. And uh, okay, well, let's slow down there again because there was a lot to unpack in just okay. that. <laughs> in just a couple of sentences. You said you had a big family, yes, but through a series of events that disappeared. Now you have another big family. So t- talk to us a little bit about that. So in early 2000s, uh, starting with my grandparents, uh, all of the older people, including my parents, began to pass away. My uh, ex-wife, Teresa, uh, her father passed away. Her brother passed away. Uh, my mother passed away. Both of my grandparents, then my little brother and my father Um, so we went from having a pretty big group of people, you know, Thanksgiving was packed to kind of looking around and not knowing what to do. Um, I got divorced in 2017. Um, it began in 2016, which is a whole nother thing that we could talk about and hopefully will before all this is over. Um, and in the process of that, uh, I remarried. Uh, not much long after that, uh, just so you guys know, to someone I didn't know before I got divorced. Um, no crossover there, which with my history, crossover would be applicable, but not in this situation. And, um, and I married someone who had uh, two little boys. So now, to put it in perspective, I have a four-year-old, a five-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 24-year-old, and a 27-year-old. Uh, I believe Libby's 27, Houston. Uh, maybe she's 26. She's going to kill me for this. But anyway, <laughs> five kids, uh, two, two uh, from uh, biological children, and then my son, Jack, who we adopted. That was my sponsor, Clovis's son. And so let, let's just talk about that real yeah. quick again. I know you have. So, and then there's two, there's two more also. Yeah, those are Pax and Ben. Those are Sarah's children. Sarah's children, right. And so, and for those of you who may not have heard the episode before, um, the the son that you have named Jack, who is yes. adopted, yes. was your first sponsor's uh, child. Correct. A- a- go talk. You about know, that and that has a ton to do with really the topic today. You know, I 
not to just bring it all back to the topic, but you know, so when I met Clovis, and I'm sure I've shared about this in some of the earlier episodes, I had never had like a genuine relationship with anyone, even my parents, you know, I always kind of viewed them uh, as someone, people I loved very much, but were kind of at odds with what I wanted to do. You know, it's an interesting thing about being a liar. People think about your words when you lie, but for me, it wasn't the words. The words were necessary because of the behavior that I lived. And so my parents were somewhat enemies of mine, and I couldn't, they were the first people who really loved me that I could not tell the truth about who I was. Uh, Or they would alter our relationship somehow, you know, um, in a way that I didn't like. And that went on in every relationship I had. So Clovis, when I began working the steps with him back in 1993, I, I don't know if it was got a gift from God. I don't know if I had reached a point in life where I was so desperate I was willing to do anything. Maybe that is the gift from God, you know, uh, surviving what it takes to be willing to, to, tell the truth about myself. But when I sat down with Clovis from the very first time I sat with him, I completely told him the truth or told him the complete truth about who and what I was at more than just the level of telling the bad things that I had done. But I began to tell him about the uncomfortable way I felt inside about who I was as a person. Because some of you may relate to this, some of you may not. I wasn't nearly embarrassed about the things that I had done, though I should have been. I was far more embarrassed about how I viewed myself, how uncomfortable I felt in my own skin, how when I was at a meeting before I really worked the steps that I wouldn't go to the bathroom because I was scared people would see how uncomfortable it was for me to walk across a room because I felt even uncomfortable about the way I looked when I walked. I felt uncomfortable about the things that I said. I would constantly second guess when I would leave conversations. Did that sound stupid? You know, did they hear me say that? Or I caught myself in a lie or what I just said didn't make sense. I would just felt jumbled and paranoid inside my own head about the world around me. And I had felt that way for a long time. I mean, I can't say that it's some mental illness that I had because of some chemicals. I, I came from a very... Uh, very hard to measure home. You know, the, the home that I lived in, my parents didn't abuse me. I wasn't beaten or, or sexually molested physically. There was stuff that I saw that I should not have seen. And there were things that were talked about in front of me that shouldn't be talked about in front of children. But I was never physically abused. My parents, uh, God rest both their souls, were both stoners. So they really weren't violent. They were just really apathetic. And, uh, and it's not that I was getting negative attention. I just didn't get a lot of attention unless disasters were happening. And I don't know if that ties into what I'm talking about, but I'll just say when I sat with Clovis and I began talking with him every week, that hour or two hours that we spent together, I began just kind of letting out the way I felt inside. And the craziest thing happened is Clovis completely understood And he had completely had that experience. This was an older man. This was a man who had a completely kind of different upbringing than me. But when I talked about the way I felt inside, he not only accepted me, but he, and he didn't normalize anything. He would say things to me that he understood what I had done and why I had done it. But he would say, now we need to go back to the word wrong. You understand that that's wrong. You know the word wrong. You know what it means. 
just because I understand and I have done the things that you've done, that doesn't make them okay. And I, and I stopped needing to justify what I had done. I could look at my behavior from the past and stop justifying it. You know, the fourth and fifth step is an amazing tool for learning how I justified what I had done. When, when I really began to understood that the second column, the things I was angry about in other people, the things that I was fearful about in the world, the things that happened in my romantic adventures that were painful, that those things I justified the way I behaved with those things, that those things that made me angry about you gave me permission to be a bad person. And if I wanted to stay sober, I had to begin at least the path of stopping being that person. So you asked me about Jack. When I found out that Jack was going to be put into the foster care system and that he was already being adopted by a family who had seven children that they'd already adopted and the and without going into too much detail there's there's you know people adopt children whose parents die because they get their social security benefits and I can't say that that's why that happened in that case but he was going uh to strangers in a strange world and when I found out that that's what was happening to Clovis's son, who I know Clovis just, you know, loved, you know, Clovis could not stop talking about how smart Jack was and what a beautiful boy he was. I only had met Jack two times before that. And when I was at Clovis's funeral and I heard that that was happening, I knew that I couldn't let that happen to Clovis's little boy. And so the, we adopted him. Uh, we contacted CPS and um, he's, he's my son, you know, and his name, we actually changed his name from what it had been. Uh, he got to pick and uh, he is Jack Clovis Greenleaf now. And um, he's, a, he's a brilliant, well-rounded, fun to be around, a uh, little bit of a pain in the neck, but who am I to talk about that, you know? <laughs> And, um, and it's really been a blessing for everyone. And it goes back to, I, I believe that God put Clovis in my life the day that he did. And that Jack is just an expression of the continuation of my life and what I can give back to the world and to be a part of Clovis's life still, even though he passed away many years ago. I know if there is a heaven, which I'm not always sure of, that Clovis is really happy that he's with us. Let me do a little break here. Um, we will be continuing our conversation with Mr. David G in just a moment. But just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at www.soberspeak.com. There you will find approximately 165 or so other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if the Spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Soberspeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. David G. So I got you off track there a little bit, which I have a tendency to do. No, I like it. I, that Telling that story and remembering it's, it's, uh, it, it, it almost brings me to tears, and I don't want to get all weird during the podcast, but, you know, things like that, you know, you don't. You know, I don't always think about what's gone on in my life of major consequence. You know, we've, 
you know, we've touched on that I got divorced. We've touched on the full family and now that that family is a broader family. And, and those things are even the negative ones, the difficult ones, you know, Clovis dying, but, but, but Jack becoming our son and, and me being divorced. But I can tell you last weekend for the Cowboy game, and I don't know how many people have this experience being divorced three years, but, um, my daughter and my son and Jack, you know, all three were over and my grandchildren and Teresa, my ex-wife and her boyfriend, Trey and uh, Sarah. And we all had fajitas and had dessert and watched the Cowboys almost beat the Steelers. And, 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 and for those of you who are having difficulty in your divorce uh, or in trying to make those whatever you call that type of family operate so that everyone gets to love each other and be friends and have compassion and add to each other's lives. All of that is possible through the spiritual awakening that we're talking about today that happens in AA. Because, you know, I want to talk about, I talked about what I did, what I thought negatively about spiritual awakening. You know, I think, I think I described that clear enough that I don't need to go on and on about it. But what is to me a spiritual awakening has so much to do with this idea of restoration of instead of t tearing down the world around me by making horrible mistakes and doing wrong things and treating people in ways that I become comfortable with because I become callous and angry at the world, which is basically what happened to me, is once all that's cleared out and I've had this opportunity, you know, with my relationship with Co Clovis and, you know, John has been my sponsor since 2009, I think, 11 years, something like that, maybe 12 years. And uh, I've had other people like Zig has been kind of with me throughout my sobriety. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I know I could call him at any moment. But through those relationships, the spirituality that I think has happened for me, and yes, it has everything to do with higher power, it has everything to do with God, but, it, but how it manifests in my life is that I see in every situation in my life the opportunity to try to add something to it to make it better, to not take these difficult situations and use them as an excuse today to treat other people wrong, like I described with my fourth step. You know, people make mistakes. I make mistakes. Life is not always congruent, you know, not all of the chemicals come together and taste good, you know. Sometimes there are bitter pills to swallow. There are things that are going on that aren't exactly the way you wanted it. Hell, there are things that go on that are way far away from the way I want them. But that becomes less and less of importance. And what has become more and more important is to find my role in improving those situations, in making those situations better. And the only way I can do that is through my relationship with God, and the only way I have a relationship with God is continuing to try and amplify and grow and learn more about what my spiritual awakening has actually been, what it took. You know, I participated in some behavior, and... um 
in my recovery. And I'm just going to be very general about it, but I'll tell you, um, it has to do with, you know, love and sex addiction and, you know, acting out inappropriately in my life. And I brought harm to people around me. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail about that. If anyone would ever want to talk to me about that, a private conversation is welcome. You know, just contact me through the uh, Sober Speak because uh, I want to be helpful and I'm an open book. But in this context, I'll just say, that I kind of like that fourth step I was talking about through other people's behavior I found a way to create space in my life where I behaved in ways that were harmful to other people and uh, and in the end uh, if there is an end to anything but the the one of the major outcomes of that is I got divorced it's not the only reason I got divorced but it is a huge contributor and um, and I take responsibility for that So when you're talking about this idea of spiritual awakening, I was never able to reconcile that. You remember I when I first started talking today, I was talking about how I looked at the faults of other people and kind of turned them into hypocrites. And so here I am, it's, you know, 20 years sober, this is a few years back, and I am behaving in ways off and on that are not, uh, uh, that are in contrast to what you think of a person having a spiritual life. So is morality spirituality? Is behavior spirituality? Do spiritual people do wrong things? And you know, those are all questions that I think we all have to look at. Because if the only people I can learn from spiritually are people who are perfect, <laughs> I am not gonna have any teachers. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've noticed the very much in long-term sobriety And I don't know if you call me an old timer. I don't want to be called an old timer because I don't want people to call me old. But I've been sober 27 years and I've been in AA for 33. So, you know, whatever you want to call me, what I have noticed through these decades of being a part of this is the people who truly talk about the steps in the program and spiritual awakening as the result of going through the big book with a sponsor continuously throughout their sobriety. And that is not all people who have been sober a long time. There's a lot of people who have been sober a long time who talk about that they didn't work the steps for 20 years and don't think they're really that important. And again, you have to choose who you learn from. And so the people that I look at who really talk about and and believe in the steps as they were shown to me, um, though we all took it a little bit different path, it's the same path in my opinion, um, all of them sp- speak about failures. I remember one of my favorite people in AA who I've been sober with since I got to the Frisco group. Um, and I really, I have to say, I was anxious about seeing her for the first time when I resurfaced from the beginning of my divorce. Um, I didn't go into hiding. I was going to Maine anyway, but I disappeared for about three months. And when I came back, I knew that the people at my home group and the people in my personal life all knew about what was going on. And, and I had a lot of shame and embarrassment about it. And this particular person, I was nervous about seeing her. I don't know why. I haven't really had a lot of conversation with her about really personal stuff outside of the meeting. I've just gone to a lot of meetings with her. But when I finally had a chance to speak with her and she said, it's going to be okay, kiddo, we all get our our uh, turn in the fallibility chair. Mm-hmm. And God, it, it it it's what I'm talking about today. You know, it's what I'm talking about today. It's It's this spiritual experience this spiritual life that we're trying to live, that I'm trying to live, that is how it comes out of me. Because that is exactly 
what I would say to someone who had failed. I, I would not sit around and talk about someone. And yet, when I was in the midst of having my failures, I thought that people were sitting around and talking about me. And I'm not saying that no one was, because I'm sure they were. But the, the, the wonderful thing about it is that the people whose opinions and lives and spiritual lives I most value, I mean, pretty much to a person, if they felt comfortable enough with me, which many of them did, they treated me with such love and compassion and understanding. And again, just like Clovis when I first got sober, none of them said that that's not wrong. No one said to me, it's okay, I did that too. But all of them let me know that they loved me and they valued me and they were proud of me for not running away. And, um, you know, that's what I mean when I say spirituality becomes, instead of looking at what's wrong with the world and thinking that life sucks and then you die, that looking at any situation that I come across and reaching out to God to show me the way and to give me the courage and the strength to follow that way and add to those people's lives to make their lives better and let them know that I love them and that I'm not saying that everything that everybody does is okay. And I know that there's wrong. And yes, Clovis, I know how to spell the word wrong, which he <laughs> often made me do. But that I, I, I have all the love in the world because of our common faults, our common failings. You know, they, yes, I love to hear that people are wonderful and having wonderful lives and doing great things, but I connect on a very deep level to people's fallibility. Yeah, like Max says in our group, uh, most of the friends I have are the people that I've told them all about my uh, fallibilities, right? as opposed to the people I tell them how great I am. Yeah, people like me a lot more when I'm not right. Right. So we started down the path a little bit earlier with kind of like, you know, a day in the life of David G. Yeah, I didn't get much. We got through the morning (laughs) about ten minutes in the morning there. But you know, like for example, like you know, you're wearing a shirt right now, and I want you to talk about this because you know, it's a big part of what you do. Yeah. Um you are not just uh involved in the recovery community from uh altruistic stance you also you, you work in the I, you, well you have a couple three different jobs so tell them right. w- what you do so i've been in the wholesale clothing business for 28 years um before i got sober in fact my last relapse was a doozy i abandoned my poor new boss at the airport in new orleans while i crawled around the ghetto tenements behind the french quarter smoking crack with god only knows who <laughs> And um, how I didn't get fired that day, I have no idea. He, be- I guess because he believed me that my car got towed. Um, <laughs> I'm sure all of you have stories like that. Um, but that's what I've done since uh, early 1993. Um, so when I got sober... <clears throat> I had been trying to get sober for a long time. And finally, in 1993, I went and lived in an Oxford house. And I relapsed in the Oxford house. And uh, and so people know what an Oxford house is, just in case they don't. It is... Oxford house is basically men's sober living, where only sober people, not any managers or anything like that, live in the house. It's, it's basically the inmates run the asylum, and it's a wonderful place. And I highly recommend it to anyone. 
Um, it's not a perfect fit for everyone, but for me at the time, I was basically indigent. Um, now, indigent is an interesting word, uh, like the word homeless. You know, we think of homeless people as being people who, I guess, live in a box or live in a tent or live under a bridge uh, and panhandle. But my description of homeless is if you don't have a place that someone can't tell you to leave at any moment at a whim, <laughs> that is homeless. Right. And so that's what I was. Did I have people's couches I could sleep on? Yes. Did I have, I no longer had my parents, They would know, my family would no longer take me in. But I was basically homeless. And, and so the Oxford house is very reasonable. I think at the time it was 90 bucks a week and I went and lived there for about eight months. Um, and so many, many years later, uh, as I got sober longer and sponsored older and older people, um, I began to have sponsees that were in their thirties, forties, and fifties. When I was in my late twenties, all my sponsees were in their early twenties. And, and if they got out of treatment and they needed to go to sober living, I gave them my only advice, which was to go to the Oxford house. Um, but I've learned through the years that there's a lot of different types of sober living that are more structured. And so I guess two and a half years ago, I made a decision that if it was possible and I was going to have to investigate it, that I was going to make a men's sober living that was one of the requirements was that you had to be old, older than 26. So it wouldn't be high school kids with 50 year old men. And the other requirement was that you had to have a sponsor that worked the steps with you from the big book. And um, so we did that. We have been, we have two houses and we've been open, I guess, coming up on two years at the original house. This spring, it'll be two years. And it's been an amazing undertaking, you know. Um, so many people ask me about sober living and what it's like to actually own and kind of uh, manage. Um, and it's very much like AA, you know. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of heartbreak, but the, wonderful things that happen, they don't make the heartbreak unimportant, but they shine through the darkness of the heartbreak. Um, it's like me in golf. <laughs> I pretty much want to break my club over my knee every time I hit the ball. But every once in a while, I hit this ball that looks like Tiger hit it, you mm -hmm. know? And it keeps me coming back. And that's that's the case with sober living. You know, we do have difficulties. We are not the panacea for anything. Um, what we we do is I try to use my personal experience as a framework for the house. So we don't shame people. We're not hostile towards our residents. We don't treat them as anything other than people who live in our home with us. And um, I don't live there. I have managers who live there that have been sober many years. And um, But I'm there a lot, and I spend as much time as possible with the guys who want to spend time with me. I don't push myself on people. Uh, but what, what it has done in my life is it's given me a very broad view of a lot of things that I didn't get in AA. For instance, most people who come to our house, the reason they come to our house is they're estranged from their families. So either their uh, parents or uh, possibly spouses uh, are helping support them while they get back on their feet. So I have had more contact with fathers of alcoholics and brothers and sisters and even wives and mothers and friends than I ever had before. 
And you have a lot of those people that are listening in right now. We have a lot of Al-Anons and people yep. who just want to know about alcoholism who listen to this episode. And so mm-hmm. they're going to be able to relate to this. So yep. talk about that a little bit more. Well, the, what I, the very first thing that really, that I didn't have, you know, I, I obviously had it with my own parents and I heard about it through the eyes of the alcoholic who I sponsored many times. But what I got to see in stark reality, and, and anyone who's an Al-Anon, I'm assuming will understand if they've taken step one, will realize, is that the loved ones of these alcoholics appeared to be as addicted to the alcoholic as the alcoholic appeared to be addicted to the substance. Mm. And that the behavior of the, not all the family members, some of the family members were black belt ninja Al-Anons and, you know, this was the last straw, the last thing they were willing to do. But but the way people rescue their loved one from recovery, and let me say that again, rescue their loved one from recovery, mm. take them away from the path they need to be on to either protect them or protect themselves, really act out is what it is, is probably the the number one thing that I see happen when people relapse. What do you think the motivation for that, taking people away from their recovery? I don't think they recognize what they're doing. I think it's very hard to delineate love and enabling. I do. I think that that they're that love, you know, some of the things that people do for their loved ones described in a vacuum would sound like a very loving thing to do but when it is the it is the behavior that continually continually gives the alcoholic the ability to avoid true recovery because they now have someone picking up the slack for them rescuing them and it's and it's not always it's not just like giving money and that kind of thing you know one of the reasons i do sober living is is some people who are supporting their family member through their early recovery don't want to give money to the addict because they have like trauma associated with giving money to the addict and so they pay us and we provide all their food and all their things and the people know that the money that's coming to us is going towards that right, right. so it's not just financial it's also you know I'll hear about how this particular person is so unhappy with the way the house runs. And I just, you know, some people don't clean their dishes. And I walked into the bathroom the other day and someone hadn't flushed. And I mean, they turn these like, this is the way life works. Sometimes people don't do their dishes. Sometimes people don't wipe off the counter after they make toast. I mean, (laughs) that's going to happen pretty much anywhere you live, but they turn it into this inconsolable, I just can't live like this. And of course, they know that mom or wife or brother or sister or dad is going, oh no, honey, you just can't live like that. That's not safe. There could be bacteria on those breadcrumbs. (laughs) And the next thing I know, well, he's going to move back home. He's just not happy at the house. And I'm like, oh. Uh. And all I can think is, please get help. The people whose family members understand that they need just as much help as the alcoholic have so much better chance at recovery. And the people who basically think the only problem with our family is our alcoholic are the people who continuously 
basically, I, I'm saying the word rescue, but the really the word is destroy the alcoholic's opportunity. Because as long as that crutch is hand reach away, and all I got to do to get that crutch to put to have mom or dad put that crutch under my arm so I don't really have to do the deal, all I have to do is act a little bit unhappy, maybe shed a tear. Why not? Why go through the hard work? Why go meet with your sponsor and read the big book and study what's wrong with you and be honest completely about the way you feel inside about life? Why do that when all you got to do is call mom and shed a tear and she's going to tell you to come home? Mm -hmm. It has absolutely been the most eye-opening part of it. And here's the the crazy part about being eye-opening. My family did that with me. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, so my sister, who you know, John, Lisa, who's probably going to hear this, my sister had her own painful event. She's not an alcoholic. I mean, she works for a beer company and doesn't even drink beer. What a waste. They used to give her beer and she'd give it away to people until she told them she didn't want it anymore. Um, But she's not an alcoholic. Uh, Alcohol doesn't do for her what it does for me. Um, but she had her own life events that she'll share in her own time. And, and because of her seeing what happened with me, she didn't ask me to rescue her. She asked me to show her what I did to get past my crack addiction. And I can tell you that my sister worked the steps right in front of my eyes has participated in in the things that she needed to participate in for her own recovery and has flourished because of her willingness to take care of herself and let me take care of me and let her husband take care of her husband and blah, on down the line. I mean, love sometimes means saying no. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard when, when I'm not healthy enough to say no. And I'm not healthy enough to say no. Let me tell you something. I own these sober livings, and I have people take advantage of me because of my inability to tell them you need to leave. Because I don't like being the bad guy. You know, I want to help people, but wanting to help people does not mean giving them so much string that they die of alcoholism. You know, and I do that. You know, I have to be completely honest. Um, and I don't know who is healthy enough to always make the perfect healthy decision in every situation, but I'm not that person. But I'll tell you, I am open to the idea of learning to do better and learning to do better. And I don't have a lot of regrets in the ownership of the sober living or being a part of what you would call the recovery business. I know a lot of people think that that's somehow crossing the lines of the traditions to be involved in it. Um, I would say that this is something that is needed in society, and I can't imagine how a non-alcoholic could handle what I do. Very true. Very true. And, and I've seen you, how you balance it all. I mean... I think it's amazing how you do balance it all, and you respect the traditions in every sense of the word, and you provide a good service, and you still have your AA life at the same time. Oh, yeah. I think it's absolutely amazing, and that's part of why, and maybe we'll get to it next time, Yeah, but that's part of why I wanted people to know what your daily routine is, because you... We you still do. haven't really gotten through no, it. No, no, that's all right. I talk too much. <laughs> no, no, no. That's good. But, but you vacillate between those two worlds, and you absolutely do it 
uh, in a brilliant way, and uh, uh, I admire it. I don't think I could do it, and I, I think you'd do it just absolutely in a All right, just so we way. don't get past this without me answering your very first question. So when I read the doctor's opinion with my sponsees, there's two really big parts of the doctor's opinion. You know, obviously about the allergy, you know, we believe in so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol, that's very important. And then there's at the bottom of that page, it talks about, you know, uh, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. And then on the next page, it talks about how their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Uh, That may be that bit anyway. And unless an entire psychic change can occur, there's very little hope of his recovery. But then the beautiful part of AA is is talked about, and it says, it says, as strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, this very same person who seemed doomed, who despaired of ever solving his problems, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol as long as he follows a few simple rules. The day I read that with Clovis and the day I read that with any of my sponsees, uh, he gave me what he called a few simple rules. Now, this is not written in the big book like this, so I just don't want to come across as being some big book thumper because I can quote a few words and that this is part of the text of the big book. But I can tell you, I do know that it is part of the lives of a lot of people that I know with long-term sobriety. Some people call it five alive. And so when, when we read that in the doctor's opinion, I stop them and I say, get out your spiral and open the front cover and we're going to write down a few simple rules. And this is what I do every day. Number one, upon awakening, I get on my knees and I ask God to keep me sober. And I do that every day. Number two, I read AA literature. That is for me around the year of Emmett Fox, which isn't like AA literature in the, in the truest sense, but it is. And then I read daily reflections. I read a little bit out of the big book or the 12 and 12. And I sit and think about that and try and meditate on that. Number three is I go to a meeting every day. I go every day. Some people say don't go every day, but I can tell you everyone I know, and I hope I'm not leaving anyone out that's going to get a resentment toward me, but everyone that I know that has meaningful meaningful sobriety that I want to emulate pretty much goes to meetings every day. Is it 100%? No. There's no such thing. I go to a meeting every day that I can and I do not give myself any leeway in can and can't. I don't feel like it is not a reason not to go to a meeting, okay? Um, so I pretty much go to a meeting every day and oftentimes go to two meetings in a day. Um, number four is I talk to another alcoholic every day. In the beginning, it was some of the best advice I'd ever gotten. My sponsor told me, you're going to be at meetings. You haven't been sober long. After the meeting, if anyone has picked up a desire chip, Go up to them and introduce yourself. Tell them that you're new too and that you, you're glad that they're there. That's all you got to say. If you want to talk longer, you can, but start learning how to make other people at the meeting feel comfortable who aren't comfortable. And number five, at night before I go to bed, I thank God for my sobriety. And I do those things every day. And I don't say that like because I want some, you know, we don't give out, you know, honor badges or whatever they call them in the Boy Scouts. Merit. I say merit badges. I don't need a merit badge. The only merit badge I want is I want lifelong sobriety, you know, and I have that. Right now, I have lifelong sobriety. I don't know how long I'm going to live, but as of now, I have it. And, um, and so, you know, meetings are a huge part of my life. And it is where I meditate when I can't clear my mind. You know, 
listening to other people. And I'll sit across the room from John Michael. We go to a lot of meetings together. We're noon meeting guys. We both work from home. And so we, when I'm in town and he's in town, we're at the noon meeting. And I'll tell you, John, a lot of times when stuff that's really important is going on, I look across the room and you almost look like you're meditating. And I can so relate to that because when I am listening to you guys talk about your problems and your solutions and your relationship with God and and your sobriety and, and all the good and bad and difficult things that happen in life, and I close my eyes and I just hear your voices, I think that that is as close as I can get to God. Amen, Brother David G. I love it. Absolutely love it. All right, so I already know that the title of this one is going to be Having Had a Spiritual Awakening, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so maybe next time we can pick up with some um, uh, other pieces of the 12 steps, if you will. Sounds good. As always, I love spending time with you, my friend. I so appreciate your your friendship, your insight, your wisdom. Um, and I know that the people that listen to you, I get so much feedback on you, uh, about you. Um, and, you know, really when you get feedback, you're hearing from like one one thousandth of the people that actually take the time to write those things in. And as David mentioned earlier, if you want to get a hold of him, just send me an email to John J O H N at soberspeak.com and we will get you hooked up. So Yeah, I've developed some nice friendships from the connections on here. So please, if if you want to talk, if you want to talk steps, you want to talk about life, you want to talk about whatever, you know, feel free to get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. God bless you. Thank you again, David. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, John. David G., my friend, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for not only this episode, but all the episodes that you have um, participated in here on this podcast has been absolutely fantastic. If you're new to the podcast and that's your first time hearing David and you think, you know, I need to hear a little bit more of that guy. All you got to do is uh, search David G and Sober Speak podcast. Uh, and I'm sure all of his various episodes will come up. Like I said, he must have eight or nine on this podcast alone. So I think it'd be something you would really, really enjoy. Now, remember, we don't want you sharing your gossip or your STD, but we do want you to share this episode with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need to hear today. So go ahead, pause that device, whatever sort of device you happen to be on, hit the share button, not share like Sunny and share, but you know, share, like sharing and all that stuff, like you share in a meeting. Anyway, you hit that little share button and you send them a link so they can listen in on either the podcast or just this episode. Either works, but we would love for you to spread the word. Now, folks, it is time once again for listener feedback. Rick R writes in, and the title or the subject line of his email was Zoom meetings. He says, hi, John. First of all, I would like to say thank you as you have saved my life in a sense. Well, I appreciate that may be a little too much, but I understand what you're saying, Rick. He says, I found you 
in my first weeks of recovery, and your podcast continues to elevate my sobriety. I have almost 20 months now, smiley face. Well, great for you, Rick. That is fantastic. He says, I have a secretary commitment for my home group. The Tuesday night men's stag here in Santa Barbara. So if you're out there in Santa Barbara, California, and you happen to go to that Tuesday night men's stag, tell everybody or tell Rick that you heard his feedback being read on this podcast. Anyway, anyway, says it and would love to get that list of speakers from you. I have heard them all. And so it would be amazing if anything can come to fruition. Sorry about your Cowboys this year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the Cowboys did not do that great. But as we say pretty much every year, there's always next year. Anyway, Rick says, my Rams got far, but not good enough. In other words, what he's saying is his Rams, they actually got to the playoffs. But. They did not proceed after the first game, but I I get what you're saying. He says, I love that yoga you do too. I'm a pseudo yogi myself. Well, you know, Rick, if you ever saw me doing, I do a lot of yoga, but if you ever saw me doing yoga, you would think that guy really needs to do yoga. I am not one of these bendy yogi guys, but there's something about just going through the motions that helps me to clear my head. It helps me to meditate. It helps to calm me down. And basically I need it usually just in order to be able to sleep at night. So uh, that's why I'm doing it. But uh, thank you. Anyway, he says, Look forward to hearing from you and just know I'm out here in cyberspace listening every week. Would love Rick R. Would love back at you, Mr. Rick R. And in regards to these Zoom meetings, just in case you're new and you haven't heard me mention this before, I know there are a ton of Zoom meetings that are going on out there. And people are generally speaking looking for speakers that can uh, help fill these slots. I have a list of, I don't know, 10 or 15 people on. Uh, that I have in a queue that I can send to you all and just send their emails and then you can get in touch with them. And these are people that have been on the podcast in the past and they're willing to be a Zoom participant or fill in a slot for one of your speaker meetings if indeed you need somebody. In fact, I I can even be on that list myself if you need it. But the people you really want to hear are the folks I'm going to send their emails. And if If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you'll recognize if I give you their last name, excuse me, if I give you their first name and last initial, uh, who they are. But uh, anyway, I have that list available. Just write me at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com if you want that list. Patty writes in and Patty says, in quotes, we did it. That was the subject line of her email. And she says, Dear John M. and the Sober Speak community. She's talking to you guys, right? She's talking to the Sober Speak community. She's talking to you right now. She says, My husband and I went to our first in-person AA meeting tonight, and we're going to an Al-Anon meeting tomorrow morning. Oh, well, that 
Patty makes my day. I'm so glad to hear it. She says, I have been listening to Sober Speak podcast for the past six months and listening to Spencer T from the recovery show. Yes, my friend Spencer. She says, I turned on the podcast at the suggestion of a friend because I felt desperate and nearly insane after 20 years of coping or lack of coping with my son's addiction. I want to thank you and your speakers for sharing their experiences, inspiring change, and teaching me that there is hope. God bless everyone. Three exclamation points. You see talking to the Sober Speak community. And if you are listening to this and you are one of the speakers that are shared on this podcast in the past, I just want to let you know that's why we do this thing here, right? And I am appreciative of you. And God bless you, Patty, and your husband. Uh, Go ahead and keep me posted there. Thank you. Sandy writes in. Sandy says, hi, John, I'm 58. I grew up in Arkansas, Arkansas, and I lived in many places in the U.S., also Canada and the Netherlands. Now I live in Australia, where I followed my foolish heart in 2005. I'm a dual citizen now, currently living in Melbourne with my partner and two dogs. I'm new to recovery, involved in AA for only a few months now. Also, recently diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I didn't mean, I really, I didn't really start drinking heavily until 2011 when I was experiencing some family violence from the man I moved to Australia for. It's been a rocky road since. A number of months ago, I decided it was time to make a change. I was sick of hurting myself and others. I started seeing a psychiatrist thinking there was an underlying problem. Sure enough, there was. Anyway, it hasn't been without pitfalls, but I'm on the road to recovery. Thank you, John, for all you do. I enjoyed the podcast with Gary Kay and look forward to listening to more Sandy. Well, Mr. Sandy, thank you so much for writing in. I appreciate it. Sounds like you've been on quite a journey and I'm sure there is absolutely, there is going to be more to your story. Thanks for writing in, Sandy. Jake writes in and Jake says, hi, John, my name is Jake S. I'm an alcoholic, been sober for one year and two months. Good for you, Jake. I'm very involved with my group in my district. I'm the intergroup rep and the vice chair for all intergroup reps in our district. I love being of service. I love listening to the podcast and I've stumbled upon Sober Speak and I can't turn it off. It's such a great podcast. Well, thank you, Jake. He says, I would love to get into the super secret Facebook group page. My name on there is Jake S. from such and such, Texas. If there's anything else I can do or that you are needing, please let me know. Thanks, Jake S. Well, Jake S., as you know, we got you on in to the Super Secret Facebook group, and I'm so glad you were able to join us, and thank you so much for writing in. I appreciate ya. Holly writes in from the Great White North. 
And when I say the Great White North, do they call Canada the Great White North anymore? I, I think so. But nonetheless, that's, that's what I call it. She says, hi, John. I listen to your podcast when I walk. I try to get 10,000 steps a day in. Sometimes I meditate. Some, excuse me. Sometimes I meditate and listen to nature. Sometimes I walk with other people. I really I just really enjoy the honesty and sheer strength and hope I get from the people that share on your pod. A few that come to mind are Brenda, Matthew, and Claudia. All the speakers are very good, and I feel at home with what's being said by you as well, John. Thank you for all your service. My sobriety date is July 17th, 2016. I started down the sobriety path in September of 2015 with a few bumps along the way. I'm 63 years old. I had a lot of fun with alcohol until I didn't. I know that feeling. If you know what I mean, she says, yeah, yes, I do know what you mean. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I heard about you by Googling podcasts about sobriety. Again, I really appreciated that you started the podcast. I think you are reaching more people than you know. Thank you again, Holly S. Well, thank you, Holly. I appreciate that. I so do. And uh, hopefully we're all doing a little bit of good out there. Hopefully, hopefully. And last but not least, Courtney writes in. And Courtney says, John, I live in... Boonville, Indiana. I like the name of that town, Boonville. The most southern part of Indiana. It's on the other side of the Ohio River from Kentucky. I have been sober for 86 days. The first 54 were spent at the Indiana Center for Recovery. I am a drug addict in recovery. I found Sober Speak through searching for sober podcasts on my iPhone. Thank you for letting me in the Facebook group. Well, you're quite welcome, Courtney. I enjoy the show and the guests I have heard thus far. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a wrap on this episode. This here episode 171, I think is what we did. David G, uh, having had a spiritual awakening. And anyway, that's it. Everybody, keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm taking this one week at a time. I will most likely be back next week, but God bless you, love you, uh, and until we meet again, adios.